Hello again, Intelligentsia. I am John Jeffers, host of the Jeffers Brief here on Contra Radio Network. Welcome to another brilliant episode, which gives the information you need to know. What you do with it is up to you, not me. All right. I hope you enjoyed those two interviews we did last week. If you haven't already gone to mumblet.com and created an account, please do so. Um, after speaking to my producer, Don Lowry, we have chosen to do a slow migration from Facebook to Mumblet for a myriad of reasons. Um, first reason, it's a better platform. You can do much more on Mumblet than you can do on Facebook. And while it is true, most of your family and friends are probably on Facebook, uh, you know what? I'm not saying don't leave them. What I'm saying is go to Mumble. I think you'll find it a much better platform. You can do more. You actually got free speech. You're not going to be monitored. There won't be a gulag where if you offend the fact checkers or you can actually post whatever you want. You know, they, you know, Nick, the owner of Mumblet, who we did an interview with last week, you know, he believes in free speech. You can say whatever you want. You're just not free of the consequences from what you say. And that's the truth of the matter. All right. Got a, uh, some things I want to get with you. But first, hey, I found this, <laughs> and I really want to play it for you. Now, if you've been watching that absolute dumpster fire, on uh, the, the DNC convention. You got to hear this sound bite. This is Joe Biden coming in, hugs his wife. I love you so much. Pet me, I'm corn pop. All right. And then Joe introduces himself as Joe Biden's husband. <laughs> Here. Listen to this, my friends. I mean, when you hear this, you're going to go, huh? Listen up. Here you go. <laughs> hey, everyone. I'm Joe Biden's husband. It's hard tonight. Excuse me. You can see why she's the love of my life and the rock of our family. She never gives herself much credit. But the truth is, she's the strongest person I know. She's a backbone like a ramrod. She loves fiercely, cares deeply. Nothing stops her when she sets her mind into getting something right. And you know, for all of you out there across the country, just think of your favorite educator who gave you the confidence to believe in yourself. That's the kind of first lady, 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 this Jill Biden will be. God love it. So go to JoeBiden.com to join our campaign. Thank you all for watching. I'll see you soon. Thank you. There you go. Yes. But don't worry. He can be president. Yeah, his mental acuity is that of a first grader right now. And it ain't going to get better, my friends. As we've all heard about the mail, vote by mail, crap debacle. Let me tell you something. Let me. The U.S. Postal Service Union has endorsed Joe Biden for president. Not unusual for unions to do that. However, with that said, do you really trust 
the postal employees to deliver your Trump ballot or return it once you put it in the mail. I'm sure it'll get lost. Okay, and in that vein, we're going to talk. This is from Daily Signal. It's a great little article. Debunking 10 myths about the U.S. Postal Service. Now, you need to understand this stuff. Now, in 2020, we're used to seeing falsehoods and misinformation spreading like wildfire online. Case in point, over the weekend, the Democrats were circulating a picture of locked post office boxes. What they didn't tell you was that picture was from 2016. So typically, they're linked to breaking news, hot-button social issues, or scandals. Now, the biggest focal point for online political drama today is an unlikely one, namely the U.S. Postal Service. Representatives from both parties, conspiracy theorists, and even singer Taylor Swift, like who gives a shit what she says or thinks, shut up and play your guitar and entertain us, you trained monkey, are weighing in on an unsexy subject of mail. Make no mistake, the Postal Service faces real challenges that require congressional action to solve. You know what? If you need congressional action to solve your problems, is there really any hope for you? Yet, while genuine differences exist between the left and the right about how best to address the problems, that's not an excuse for melodramatic rumor-mongering. With the House convening a special session specifically to address issues involving the Postal Service. And don't worry, you, my friends, who are suffering and need some money to put food on the table, you're not that important to the Democrats. You just aren't. You know why you're not important anymore? Because President Trump signed those executive orders. That's why. So it's important to separate myths from reality. So myth number one, The Postal Service is removing sorting machines to sabotage delivery. Now, everybody who's reporting it, NBC News, which is, you know, oh God. Anyways, the reality is this. The volume of mail has plunged in recent decades due to the spread of electronic communications. As a result, the amount of infrastructure needed to manage the flow of mail also has declined. So the Postal Service has been consolidating operations for years to reduce costs, a practice that predates President Trump. Myth number two. The Postal Service is removing collection boxes to block mail-in ballots. (sighs) The Postal Service has more than 141,000 blue collection boxes spread across the country. Those boxes are moved regularly from low-demand to high-demand areas to maximize efficiency. Photos of those boxes in the backs of trucks are part of standard operating procedure rather than proof of a nefarious anti-election plot. Despite that, the Postal Service has decided to pause any further moving of boxes until after the election as a result of the online panic. Myth number three. The Postal Service is locking collection boxes to prevent public access. The reality is this. Lock caps are sometimes put on collection boxes in areas where there is a rash of mail theft. Employees place the caps after the final pickup of the day and remove them in the morning since collection box theft is overwhelmingly done at 
night. This practice also predates the Trump administration. Myth number four. The Postal Service could go bankrupt before the election without a $25 billion bailout. The reality is this. Although some were concerned that the COVID-19 pandemic would push the Postal Service over the financial edge, revenues have been stable thanks to a big increase in package deliveries. In addition, Congress provided a $10 billion loan to the Postal Service earlier this year. That would be like eight months ago. As a result, there is virtually no scenario where the Postal Service goes bankrupt this year meaning that a proposed $25 billion bailout has no reasonable connection to the coming election. However, Congress shouldn't view this fact as a reason to be complacent when it comes to passing reforms. Well, so be it. Myth number five. The Postal Service plans to triple postage rates on mailed ballots. Reality check is that the Postal Service provided common sense guidance to state and local governments regarding how to handle time-sensitive ballot requests. This guidance was already, was already in the works before Postmaster General Louis DeJoy began his job. Most mail-in ballot requests are made weeks or even months in advance and thus can safely be sent using low-cost, second-class mail. However... Some places allow for mail-in ballot requests a mere four days before the election. In those situations, it makes sense to use full-cost first-class mail to ensure that voters get their ballots on time. The idea that this sensible guidance amounts to extortion by Jajoy should be laughable, except it has been promoted by the, lakes, by the likes of Senate Minority Leader Chucky Schumer. Hold on. Hold on, my friends. Now, I know you don't want to do this, but it must be done. It's true. All right. We'll be right back after this. We'll continue with... Well, we're not done with this yet. You need to know the facts. I'm giving them to you. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. At Stag Arms, there is no weak side. Our rifles are 100% American-made, including each and every part assembled. We aim to provide recreational shooters, law enforcement officers, hunters, and professional shooters with super quality and competitively priced rifles. Every rifle shipped is built to order. Check out Stag Arms now. Log on to ContraRadioNetwork.com and click on the Stag Arms banner. Black Metal Firearms are a couple guys I know personally and friends of mine that put together some great accessories for all your firearms needs. Everything that I've seen them do is just top notch and very nice looking. Blackmetalfirearms.com, check them out. I think you'll be glad you did. Go to Facebook, Black Metal Firearms. They got a great page there too. Learn more about the workmanship and the craftsmanship they put into every accessory and every build they do.
Welcome back. It's part two, segment two of the Jeffers Brief. As we continue the fact check, debunking 10 myths of the post office. We left off with number five. We're going to start with number six. The postal delivery changes are illegal sabotage by the postmaster general. The reality is this, friends. DeJoy, who assumed the Postmaster General's post in June, was selected in large part due to his decades of experience as CEO of New Breed Logistics, a supply chain company. The logistics industry focuses on maximizing cost efficiency and on-time performance, both of which the Postal Service needs to improve. I think we can all agree on that. With that in mind, DeJoy has undertaken initiatives aimed at reducing cost and improving service levels. Now, it's too late to tell whether these changes will be successful, and DeJoy has announced a suspension until... What the hell? Get out of here. Has announced a suspension until after the election. Now, while the media reliably reports alarming anecdotes from postal union officials who opposed cost-cutting efforts... Data shows that postal performance has not yet experienced a significant change under DeJoy. So representatives from both parties have expressed disapproval of efforts to pull the Postal Service out of chronic annual deficits. That's part of a long-term trend of Congress imposing unsustainable mandates for the sake of its own political benefit. Liberating the Postal Service from those mandates would be the best path forward. Myth number seven, the Postal Service needs more money to process mail ballots. Leaders of both parties wrongly have suggested the Postal Service lacks the resources to handle the millions of ballots that will be sent through the mail this year, meaning that it will require additional taxpayer funding. The reality is this, my friends. The Postal Service handled about $2.75 billion items per week in 2019 with spikes at various times of the year such as the holiday season mail-in ballots will represent at most a few percentage points of total volume this fall even with the expected increase in requests due to COVID-19 further given that regular mail volume has dropped in 2020 the Postal Service has excess processing capacity. It does not need additional resources for the election. Intelligentsia, are you listening? Myth number eight. The Postmaster General massacred the Postal Service management. Again, Intelligentsia, here's the real story. When DeJoy took over in June, there was a modest amount of personnel change within the top levels of the Postal Service management. Much of that involved internal promotions. Senior departing staff were replaced by experienced employees. Promotion from within. New leadership at the top of a large organization almost always includes some amount of change underneath, and the Postal Service is no exception. The change is similar to what happened when previous postmaster generals took over, rather than a heavy-handed takeover. <coughs> it's true, guys. Myth number nine. 
The Constitution requires a government-run postal service. Reality. Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution authorizes Congress to establish post offices and to provide for postal roads. That doesn't mean that post offices and roads are mandated or that badly needed cost savings are a constitutional crisis. Myth number 10. The Postal Service loses money only because of unfair funding requirements. Intelligentsia, here's the reality. The Postal Service is weighed down by exceedingly high employee compensation costs, which averaged more than $97,000 per worker in 2019. Now, part of that includes a retiree health plan, which has obligations similar to a pension. Bipartisan legislation passed in 2006 required that the Postal Service pre-fund the retiree health plan like a pension plan with money deposited as an employee earns future benefits. That's intended to ensure that there's money to provide for the health coverage when employees retire. Unfortunately, the Postal Service has failed to uphold its funding obligations, leaving the plan $69 billion in the hole as of last fall. Furthermore, the Postal Service would have lost more than $4 billion in 2019 alone, even if it had not paid a penny into the health plan. Now, claims that health benefit prefunding is unfair ignore the fact that retiree health benefits are uncommon, especially outside government, and that's true. I can attest to that. And ignore the fact that postal employees are entitled to these benefits. One alternative to prefunding is allowing the health care or the health plan to accumulate massive liabilities, which would guarantee an even bigger financial crisis than what the Postal Service is already facing. That would be irresponsible, unfair, and unfair to both postal employees and the taxpayers alike. The other alternative to prefunding would be to turn the Postal Service into a standard government agency, which is a stated goal of many Democrats. A federal bailout of the Postal Service would be the first step toward placing yet another massive burden on U.S. taxpayers. Rather than allowing costs and deficits to grow unchecked, Congress should pass reforms that would enable the Postal Service to raise revenue and lower costs, stabilizing its shaky finances. From there, we should have a robust debate about the future of the Postal Service and whether its current structure makes sense. Meanwhile, the sooner we stop spreading unfounded rumors about the Postal Service, the more likely we will to reach an agreement on solutions. However, my friends, as you and I both know, as long as, this, as the Democrats perceive this as a political football, something they think they can win on, they will continue to thrust it into the mainstream media who will parrot the exact words or you know what they're told to say. Now, David Ditch is a research associate. Now, he wrote this. This is good stuff. He's a research associate specializing in budget and transportation policy and in the uh, Grover M. Herman Center for the Federal Budget at the Heritage Foundation. There you go. Now, I've told you the, what the myths are, what the facts are, and why and, and where, where I got the information. 
If you think you can find something better to, you know, top me, by all means, please have at it. Oh, my, oh, my. Where do we go from here? Well, I'll tell you. We've already had Mr. Kleinsmith, an attorney for the Department of Justice, plead out for his role in the Russia hoax investigation. But wait, shoppers, there's more. More is coming. John Durham is going to be interviewing a person overseas. We don't know who that person is yet. After that, he goes after John Brennan for an interview there. Now, why John Brennan still has his uh, security clearance for the CIA is beyond me. He doesn't need it. He doesn't work there. Get rid of him. Cut off his clearance. Cut him off right here and now. He would hate that. Couldn't stand it. But, my friends, we do have a little something from Sundance. Haven't heard from Sundance in a while. And I want to put this out there because I think it will... It puts a little light on what I think we're probably going to want to do. Now, before we get started on that, my friends... I want to take a break because I don't want to stop once I get started. So let's do the break now so I've got the time to go over this. This is important. You need to know it. What you do with the information, well, that's up to you entirely. So hang loose. We'll be right back after this. Life is unpredictable, but you can count on Valley Food Storage to help you and your family prepare. With clean, natural, great-tasting, and long-lasting food storage, with our natural and nutritious freeze-dried food, you'll be storing the food you love to eat. Log on to ContraRadioNetwork.com and click on the Valley Food Storage banner. Times are changing. The circus of politics, healthcare's low standards and high prices, and let's not forget food quality. What to do? Arm yourself with Life Change Tea at GetTheTea.com. In a world of chemical imbalance and poor air and water quality, it's time you make a move. Log on to GetTheTea.com and stock up on organic non-GMO supplements. Don't forget the tea. Cleansing your body never felt so good. And we have a brand new tea called Takedown Tea, which helps support healthy glucose. All natural body support so you can be at your best naturally. All you have to do is log on to GetTheTea.com. That's GetTheTea.com. We're not a fad that comes and goes. We are the real deal. Join us and armor up. GetTheTea.com. That's GetTheTea.com. Changing America's health one tea bag at a time. All right, welcome back to segment three. As I told you we will do, 
We're going to talk about the substantive elements of the big story behind the Mueller special counsel purpose. Now, we haven't heard from Sundance in a while, but this has to be talked about. We need to understand this as best we can. Foolishness and betrayal of our country have served to reveal dangers within our present condition. Misplaced corrective action, regardless of intent, is neither safe nor wise. The intelligence apparatus was weaponized against a candidate by those who control the levers of government. This is what A.G. Bill Barr needs to explain to the nation. The purpose behind the briefing Durham's lead investigator, William Aldenberg, was essentially to provide an understanding of what we the people already know. The purpose behind releasing the investigator name is to cut through the chaff and countermeasures and give face to the unit holding the precarious responsibility of sunlight. The position of Bill Barr, and indeed our nation, is a direct result of decisions made by Maine Justice as run by the special counsel in the fall of 2017 and the summer of 2018. The events surrounding the leaking of the FISA warrant used against U.S. person Carter Page, the purposeful cover-up by Andrew Weissman, who should be in federal prison as far as my opinion is concerned, and the downstream 2018 DOJ decision not to prosecute SSCI Security Director James Wolfe for those leaks, was the fork in the road moment for the Department of Justice and the institutions of government as a whole. Attorney General Jeff Sessions was recused, as admitted in his June 2nd testimony, Deputy AG Rod Rosensnake was provided no special counsel oversight. And the Mueller team was essentially controlling all the DOJ activity. That was when the DOJ made a decision not to prosecute Wolf for leaking classified information. Now, D.C. U.S. Attorney Jesse Liu signed off on a plea deal where Wolf pled, uh, pled guilty to only a single count of lying to the FBI. If the DOJ had pursued the case against Wolf for leaking the FISA application, everything would have been different. The American electorate would have seen evidence of what was taking place in the background effort to remove President Trump. That's called a coup! And we would be in an entirely different place today if that prosecution or trial had taken place. So we have three 2018 events that reveal the wolf issue. Event one is this. On February 9th, 2018, the media reported on text messages from 2017 between Senate Intelligence Committee Vice Chairman Mark Warner and Chris Steele's lawyer, a lobbyist named Adam Waldman. These text messages appear to have come from an investigative file belonging to the Washington Field Office Supervisory Special Agent Brian Dugan. Event 2. Four months after Mark Warner texts were made public on June 8, 2018, another headline story surfaced. An indictment for Senate Select Committee on Intelligence Security Director James Wolfe was unsealed on June 7, 2018. 
This was the investigation conducted by Brian Dugan, the supervisory special agent of the Washington Field Office. Event 3. Slightly less than two months after the release of the Wolf indictment, another headline story. And on July 21, 2018, the special counsel declassified and publicly released the FISA application used against former Trump campaign advisor Carter Page. What they released was, again, from Brian Dugan's investigative file. Now, these three releases later identified a chain of custody for Dugan's investigative file that flowed back into the special counsel after Dugan's investigation and capture of Wolf as a leaker was complete. The special counsel team then began releasing information from that file before it was returned to the D.C. USAO, U.S. Attorney's Office, for the May 18th grand jury presentation. Now later, on December 14th, 2018, a fourth, albeit buried, public release confirmed everything. The FBI supervisory agent filed an attachment to the sentencing recommendation proving it was the Carter Page FISA that was leaked by Wolf. Now keep in mind, the official position of the DOJ and FBI was that James Wolf did not leak the FISA application on March 17, 2017. This official position is a lie. And we know, and we know that. And the U.S. prosecutors filed tortured language throughout the sentencing phase after the plea deal was struck. Despite Dugan's position that an intelligence damage assessment needed to be carried out as a result of the Wolf action, no damage assessment was done. It was not done because such an assessment would have resulted in evidence of the SSCI compromise. Indeed, the entire intelligence apparatus and the balance of separation of power within the intel apparatus would have been put at risk and exposed by any further investigation. The Wolf plea was part of an overall approach to cover up the intelligence compromise. Wolf's lawyers knew by the absence of an official damage assessment that our government was fearful of this leak event. They used that fear in their plea negotiations. The plea was an outcome of the larger cover-up to hide a serious breach of intelligence that was part of the larger effort across the Senate and special counsel to remove a sitting president. In 2018, this was the apex of Weissman and the Mueller's larger objective. When Supervisory Special Agent Dugan turned over his file, institutional interest, which included the need to protect the Senate Intelligence Committee, and included the need for the special counsel to cover their own wrongdoing, took ownership of Dugan's file. Everything during and after was construed or constructed as a cover for this cross-body corruption. This cover-up included the July 21st release of the FISA application by the special counsel team that was now running the DOJ operation. It was Brian Dugan's March 17, 2017, copy of the FISA application that was purposely released under the auspices of a FOIA fulfillment. That's why the March 17th uh, FISC, which is the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court stamp, was on the released copy.
Dugan brought the FISA application to the Senate Committee on Intelligence on March 17, 2017, where James Wolfe took custody, and shortly after 4.02 p.m., Vice Chairman Mark Warner reviewed it. There is no indication any other member of the SSCI reviewed the review and return document other than Wolf and Warner before returning it to SSA Dugan. As a result, the identified leak of the FISA application had only a few possible suspects. This is where the dates of Ali Watkins' search warrant and the captured dates of the Mark Warner Adam Waldmar or Waldman text align. The Watkins warrant and the Warner text as captured cover an almost identical period. These documents appear to have been part of Dugan's investigative file. Everything about the Wolf leak then became part of the cover-up. This became evident in the series of documents and court records that came out throughout 2018. The trial was very clear. I'm sorry, the trail was very clear and the official uh, position of the entire intelligence community, which includes the SSCI, the DOJ, and the FBI. It's all false. Everything is built on a lie. There is no doubt that Wolf leaked the FISA application on March 17th through a series of pictures on the 82-page application that Wolf sent via text to Miss Watkins. In hindsight, however, what we did not immediately know at that time is the simultaneous to the decision-making regarding Wolf was another, a second special counsel cover-up effort was taking place surrounding the origin of the Russia collusion fraud. To further understand the decision-making of the DOJ under the control of the Weissman Group as to why they hid the James Wolf leak, it's important to note that the DOJ in the Eastern District of Virginia was creating another cover story to block sunlight on the origin of how WikiLeaks gained the leaked DNC emails. So on April 11, 2018, the Julian Assange indictment was unsealed in the Eastern District of Virginia. From the indictment, we also discover that it was under seal since March 6, 2018. And on Tuesday, April 15, 2019, more investigative material was released. Again, you got to note the dates. Grand jury, December of 2017. This means the FBI investigation prior to. You understand. The FBI investigation took place prior to December 2017. It was coordinated through the Eastern District of Virginia where Dana Bond was a U.S. attorney at the time. The grand jury indictment was sealed from March of 2018 until after Mueller completed his investigation of April 2019, well over a year later. So your question is, John, how does this all connect? I'm going to tell you. What does it mean? I'm going to tell you. James Wolfe was confronted about his leaking by SSA Dugan in December of 2017. At the same time, the FBI Washington Field Office was investigating Wolfe and the SSCI. The FBI was also investigating WikiLeaks and Julian Assange. This matters because it shows what the mindset was within Maine Justice, specifically the special counsel in late 2017 and early 2018. In both examples, Wolf and Assange, 
The actions by the special counsel reflect a predisposition to hide the much larger background story. So a prosecution of Wolf would have exposed a complicit conspiracy between corrupt U.S. intelligence actors and the United States Senate. Two branches of government, the executive and the legislative, essentially working on one objective, the removal of a sitting president. A coup! The special counsel and the DOJ decision protected multiple U.S. agencies in Congress. Now, a non-prosecution of Assange would have exposed a complicit conspiracy between the corrupt U.S. intelligence actors and a host of political interests who created a fraudulent Russia collusion conspiracy with the central component of Russia hacking the DNC, which never happened. If Assange were allowed to show he received the DNC emails from a leaker and not from a hack, the central component of the Russia interference narrative collapses. It's done. The special counsel and DOJ decision protected multiple U.S. agencies and Robert Mueller. Now, as soon as the special counsel was going to release the Russia report, which is the Mueller report, the Eastern District of Virginia shut down Assange with a DOJ indictment. This is in a similar way the DOJ shut down the Wolf issue with a weak plea agreement. Again, the key takeaway here is the timing. Both operations were taking place at the same time, fall of 2017 through the spring and summer of 2018. Both held a similar purpose. What we can see from both the DOJ and SC operations is an intentional effort by Maine Justice not to expose the epicenter of a multi-branch effort against the White House. Some people within the FBI were obviously participating along with people within the DOJ. However, not all Washington, D.C. FBI agents or officials were involved. We know there were genuine investigators, at least in the Wolf case, because Dugan's investigative evidence shows Wolf was leaking classified information. If he did not present the investigative evidence proving Wolf leaked, quite simply, we wouldn't have it to show you. So, you know, so unfortunately, in hindsight, we can see something internally corrupt within the DOJ special counsel group was happening because the FBI evidence against Wolf was buried. The high-level group inside the DOJ in Washington, D.C. in the summer of 2018 was making decisions on what not to do. These two events highlight corruption within the DOJ that existed despite the presence of Sessions and apparently the willful blindness of Rod Rosensnake. The decisions in the Wolf case are critical. That's the fork in the road. If the Wolf prosecution had continued, it would have undoubtedly surfaced that key government officials and politicians were working together, executive and legislative. The ramifications of the Wolf case are stunning. Had the prosecution continued, it's very likely a seditious conspiracy would have surfaced. Now, sometimes you get the question, if you know this and all this information is in the public sphere, then why didn't any member of the media cover it? Duh. Here's the answer. They couldn't. At least they couldn't cover it and still retain all the claims they had been making since March 2017, when journalist Allie Watkins gained a fully non-redacted copy of the Carter Page FISA application. Politico, The New York Slimes, CNN, MSNBC, 
the Washington Compost are all implicated in the James Wolf leak to Allie Watkins. They had the FISA information since March of 2017, yet those media outlets were disingenuously falsifying their reporting, big surprise, huh, on the actual content of the FISA application despite their knowledge. Oh, heavens me, how dreadful. You mean the mainstream media was covering? Hmm? Remember, all the media denials about what Devin Nunes wrote in the Nunes memo, remember the media proclaiming the Steele dossier was not part of the FISA application? How was the media 15 months later in June of 2018 going to report on the wolf leak to Watkins without admitting they had been manufacturing stories about its content for the past year and a half? It was in the media's interest not to cover or dig into the wolf story. Additionally, you know, you would think somewhere with some of those organizations, there there might have been people with some type of, you know, some degree of integrity, self-respect, but I digress. All right, additionally, from both the DOJ and media perspective, coverage of the Wolf leak would prove the Senate Intel Committee was at minimum a participating entity in the coup effort. That same Senate Intel Committee is responsible for oversight of the CIA, FBI, the Department of Justice, National Security Division, ODNI, the Office of Director of National Intelligence, and DNI, the Director of National Intelligence, and all the intelligence agencies. (coughs) Now, worse yet, all the intelligence officers within those agencies require confirmation from the SSCI, the Senate Committee on Intelligence, including the chair and vice chair. And any discussion of the Wolf leak would highlight the motive for ongoing corruption within the SSCI and blocking those nominations. For example, see John Ratcliffe. The ramifications are stunning. There was a clear fork in the road, and the DOJ, under the influence of the special counsel, took the path toward a cover-up, which considering what the DOJ was simultaneously doing with the Eastern District of Virginia regarding Assange is not entirely surprising. Well, was that decision wrong? Yeah, it was wrong. It was corrupt as hell. Were the decisions done with forethought to cover up gross abuses of government? Yes. When the DOJ and Bill Barr's investigative unit labeled the Durham investigation is today, is directly connected to the decisions of special counsel the DOJ made in 2017 and 2018 to protect themselves and internally corrupt actors from discovery. It is often said the cover-up is often worse than the crime. This is never more true than with these examples because where we are today. Now miles down the path of consequence from those corrupt decisions is seemingly disconnected from the ability of any institutional recovery. That's now the issue for Bill Barr, John Durham, and William Aldenberg. The latter official has direct evidence to prove this all took place. Eventually, if A.G. Bill Barr wants to deal with the issues, he will need to explain to the American people about that fork in the road and what happened. That type of honest sunlight delivery means taking people back into the background of the larger story and explaining what decisions was made. 
with brutal honesty and without trepidation for the consequences, regardless of their severity and regardless of the friends of Bill Barr compromised by the truth. And here's a big reason why Bill Barr should take that approach. We know. You know. We know the DOJ trying to hide it doesn't change our level of information. And regardless of whether Bill Barr actually admits what surrounds him, there are people who know. We know, you know. William Aldenberg knows, and likely by tonight, John Durham knows. So A.G. Bill Barr shouting at President Trump not to tweet doesn't change the fact this corrupt curtain has been removed and the truth stands on its own merit. It's time to come clean. We, the people, deserve a representative government that admits the truth. And sometimes the truth can be damaging. But like we said earlier, covering it up is even worse. I'm John Jeffers. Here at the Jeffers Brief. Thanks for listening.